Are you looking forward to an inheritance? Something wonderful or valuable that will one day be yours? As we begin our journey together through the historical books today in the book of Joshua, we find ourselves standing across the Jordan River with the people of God, who, led by Joshua, are about to take possession of the inheritance that was promised to their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Joshua to see what it has to teach us, not just about the land these people inherited, but also about what we stand to inherit as the people of God. I don't remember a lot about my fourth grade year at David Brewer Elementary School, but I do remember that we studied all about Australia and we learned all the songs from The Sound of Music. And I remember that when my teacher, Mrs. Lawrence, was mad, she would throw erasers across the room. And I remember that we did our own production of The Wizard of Oz. In fact, I will have you know that I had the role of Dorothy in the David Brewer Elementary School fourth grade production of The Wizard of Oz. However, I should probably also tell you that I wasn't the first string Dorothy, I was second string. Now, not an understudy, mind you, as we second stringers performed the whole play too for the younger kids at the school, but I can't quite say that I had the starring role, but I'm not bitter about it or anything. Think about that story, The Wizard of Oz, with me. Dorothy has been taken away in her unconscious state to the land of Oz. And from the minute she gets there, she wants to go home. And the story takes us down the yellow brick road, through the fields of poppies and skies of flying monkeys and into the Emerald City to see the great and powerful wizard. And at the end, Dorothy discovers that all she really needed to do to get home was to click her ruby slippers together and begin to chant, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. And when she does, she awakens back in her black and white world of Kansas Prairie. And here's what she says. If I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Have you ever given any thought to what the real message is of The Wizard of Oz? I think it's that there's really no better reality out there to long for. That the best place you and I could hope for is the here and now around us on this earth. But isn't there something inside us that knows that isn't true? Do you ever find yourself with a deep-seated sense of discontentment with this life in this world as we know it, and a sense that we were made for something more? Well, you were. And in one sense, this is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. You and I were made to live with God's people in God's land under God's righteous rule. And the Bible is the story of God's wise working out of his plan to bring us into his holy land where we will finally be at home in his loving presence. In the Garden of Eden, God's people, Adam and Eve, lived in a land that was created by and entrusted to them by God. And in this land, all of their needs were met. 
and they had lives filled with purpose, enjoying perfect fellowship with the God who walked with them in the cool of the day. But Adam and Eve were expelled from this land of blessing because of their disobedience. They were sent away, however, with a promise that a descendant would one day be born who would put an end to the misery brought into God's land by sin. And so from Genesis 3 forward, the Bible is the story of God working out his plan to redeem and restore his people to his land, a land made holy by his very presence, a renewed paradise where he will live forever with them. But this plan will not come about in one instantaneous act. Instead, God will accomplish his plan beginning with one small stretch of real estate in which he will do a special work of redemption that will serve as a launching pad for his gospel of grace to sinners to spread to every corner of his creation. So from this narrow land bridge that connects the continents of Africa and Europe and Asia, God's covenant blessing will extend to the entire world. And this plan began with one man, Abraham, whom God called out of Ur to go to the land that God intended to give him. We read about it in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Let's skip down to verse 6. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Well, a while later, God became more specific about the territory that he promised. Look in Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now later, the promise was reiterated, but with an ominous prophecy included. Turn to Genesis 15 and verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So Abraham is going to have an offspring who will leave the land God is giving to him and go to a land where they will become servants. And we know that this is exactly what happened. When Jacob's sons went to Egypt for grain during a famine, and eventually became slaves of Pharaoh. Now this prophecy also tells us something else that is significant. 
when Abraham's descendants come back 400 years later to live in the land that God has given to them, they are going to be God's instruments to execute his judgment upon the people living there who have despoiled his land through their unbridled wickedness, which God can be patient with for only so long. Now, when God spoke this prophecy to Abraham, the evil of the Amorites living in Canaan had not yet reached the point of deserving and obliterating judgment. But one day it would. The day would come when Israel would drive out not an innocent people who were being unjustly attacked and invaded, but a guilty people fully deserving the judgment of God delivered by the people of God. God's promise of the land was later reaffirmed to Moses when he called Moses to go to Egypt to demand that Pharaoh release his people. Look with me in Exodus 3, verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These various tribes were squatters and interlopers in a land of promise, and God was about to evict them. Their evil had become more and more egregious with each new generation as they worshiped their false gods through shameful sexual practices and even by throwing babies into the fire. Now imagine if there was a country today in which parents routinely threw their children into a fire pit as a sacrifice to some imagined God. I mean, there would be constant coverage on every cable news channel and celebrities would line up to demand that the United Nations put an end to this evil. But no one was calling out for this evil to stop in this ancient setting, except for God himself. In an age when there was no worldwide cry for justice, God was about to use his people to put an end to this great wickedness and cruelty. Don't think for a minute that this was some divinely sponsored genocide. It wasn't. This was divine justice. But before executing justice, God extended mercy to the Canaanites, giving them a 400-year opportunity to turn away from their wickedness and toward him while his people were kept in slavery in Egypt. As the book of Joshua opens, we find the people of Israel camped on the border of Canaan, the land that God had promised to give to them, where they're finally going to be at home, the land where they will enjoy the abundance of God's blessing and rest from all of their enemies. They're preparing to cross over the Jordan and enter in, led by Moses' successor, Joshua. Now, Joshua was introduced to Bible readers long before the book of Joshua. Way back in Exodus 33, we read about Moses and Joshua meeting with the Lord face to face in the tent of meeting. But there's an interesting detail that we may have missed in that account. Look with me in Exodus 33, verse 11. We read, 
When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now think about this. Evidently, Joshua lingered in the tent of meeting in the presence of the visible Lord after Moses left. So how must this have shaped his understanding of God, his love for God, and his confidence in God? Surely this experience made God's promise of his ongoing presence all the more tangible to Joshua. When we read in Joshua 1, verse 5, that Yahweh says this to him, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. God has prepared and protected an inheritance for his people, the land. And Joshua is going to be the one who will cause them to enter in and enjoy their inheritance. When we come to chapter 5 of Joshua, the presence of God becomes even more vivid than Joshua had experienced to that point. Joshua went to take a look at Jericho, the first city they would have to take possession of in the land. Perhaps he was taking in those high fortified walls and wondering how God was going to enable the Israelites to break through them. Perhaps he was wondering how God was going to fulfill his promise to be with him as he had been with Moses in the pillar of cloud and fire. Well, if that's what he was wondering, he didn't have to wonder for long. Look with me in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Standing before him was a magnificent warrior with his sword drawn. But what Joshua didn't yet realize was that this warrior's sword was not drawn against him or against Israel, but against the wickedness of the Canaanites. Their iniquity was now complete, and their day of judgment had arrived. Look back in Joshua 5 and verses 14 and 15. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua may have been appointed by God to lead his people into the land, but now he has met the supreme commander, not only of Israel, but of a mighty angelic army, the hosts of heaven. God has come down to carry out his own will his own plan by his own hand. He has come down to be the captain of Israel's salvation. This account of Joshua's encounter with this mysterious warrior brings to mind Jacob's encounter with the man at Peniel who wrestled with him until daybreak. 
And it also reminds us of Moses' encounter with the burning bush, where Moses was told to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. Clearly, Joshua understood who it was that he was standing in front of. God himself in human form, perhaps the pre-incarnate Christ. And so he took off his sandals and bowed before him. Maybe Joshua had been thinking about how difficult the coming battle was going to be. Perhaps he had been formulating strategies for a long and difficult siege. And if so, it was now becoming clear that this war was not going to be won through human strength or strategy. Look in chapter 6, verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. God spoke as if the battle was already over. Because in essence, it was. This victory would not be the fruit of Joshua's brilliant tactics or Israel's powerful army. It would be the work of God, the gift of God. At this point in the story, let's just stop for a minute and imagine what it must have been like for Jesus as a young boy and then as a young adult to read the book of Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew version of the name translated as Jesus in Greek. Now, do you happen to remember that old comic strip character named Nancy? I remember looking in the newspaper at that comic and comparing myself to Nancy in the comic strip. And I wonder, when Jesus read the book of Joshua, he was reading a book with his own name as the title, the book he would have called Jesus. And in this man, Joshua, who bore his name centuries before him, Jesus saw the shape his own life would take, how he would lead his people into the rest that God promised to provide, and how he will one day come again to bring judgment on all of those who persist in living out their wickedness in God's land. Here, in the book of Joshua, we see the deliverance Jesus will accomplish in shadow form. Yet when Jesus came the first time, he didn't accomplish his great work of deliverance by brandishing the sword of God's judgment. Instead, he brought our deliverance by bearing the sword of God's judgment. He was pierced for our transgressions. The sword of God's wrath against sin was turned against Christ in order to reconcile to God those who were his enemies. Because Christ was pierced by the sword of God's justice, we can be sure that the sword of the Lord will never be turned against us, but is always for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Finally, it was time for the people of Israel to enter into Canaan to receive their inheritance. But there was something that had to be done before they could move forward and make themselves at home. 
they had to do something that the previous generation had neglected to do. They needed to be circumcised. Through circumcision, they identified themselves with God's covenant promise to Abraham to make his descendants into a great nation, living in the land of promise, becoming a blessing to the whole world. By circumcising their sons, the Israelites expressed their longing for a new heart, a longing for God. As they took up residence in this new land, they demonstrated that they were putting their trust in God's promise to take the curse upon himself for their inability to live up to the covenant stipulations. And then they celebrated Passover, identifying themselves as people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Celebrating the Passover meal, they demonstrated that they were people who longed for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So once the men had healed, they were ready to move forward. But the battle plan provided to Joshua by the divine commander was unconventional, to say the least. Look back in Joshua 6, beginning in verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, ancient battles were characterized by noise. Not only the sounds of clashing swords and horses' hooves, but also the yells and chants of opposing armies seeking to intimidate one another with their bravado. But every day for six days, the Israelites got up and they marched around the walls of Jericho in absolute silence. The Canaanites inside the walls of Jericho must have felt a growing sense of dread over those six days of silent marching, sensing that something was about to happen. And they were right to be afraid because finally that seventh day came. Look in verse 20 in chapter 6. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Here in the ancient book of Joshua, we have a picture of the way our greater Joshua will lead us into God's land at the end of human history with a shout and the sound of trumpets. Remember in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Joshua provides us with a picture of the way Jesus, our greater Joshua, will deliver judgment on that day when all who persist in wickedness and unbelief will be devoted to destruction. On that great and terrible day, when Christ comes again, all of those who have rejected Christ's shed blood and perfect righteousness as their only hope will suffer the same fate as those who lived in Jericho. Rich and poor, great and small, young and old, will face God's fury when the commander of the Lord's armies who led the armies of Israel to kill every inhabitant of Jericho will bring complete and final destruction upon the city of man. But this book that paints the picture of divine judgment upon the Canaanites is also quick to make sure that we see what happens to those who deserve judgment, but cry out for mercy. Look here in chapter 6, in verse 25. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Now, wait a minute, we want to say. A prostitute and her family are the only people in Jericho who were spared? Who is this woman? And why is she saved alive? Well, back in Joshua 2, we read the story about the spies sent to Jericho before the rest of the Israelites crossed over into Canaan. They made their way to the kind of place in town where an outsider might be able to go unnoticed, while also gleaning information about the city. They stayed at the home or inn of a prostitute named Rahab. But apparently their presence did not go unnoticed as the king sent emissaries to Rahab's home who demanded that the two spies be brought out. Now, at that point, Rahab had a difficult decision to make. If she turned over these two men to the king, she'd likely be rewarded. And if she hid them, she'd be committing treason against Jericho and its king, and if discovered, would be put to death. But that's what she did, the risk she took. Why would she do that? We find the answer in chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God 
He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So evidently word had reached Canaan in regard to what Yahweh had done to bring his people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and the victories he had given them over anyone and everyone who stood in their way. And this made the Canaanites afraid of the Israelites because they were afraid of Israel's God. But evidently, it did a deeper work in Rahab than merely making her afraid. Because while the hearts of all of the rest of the people melted into fear, Rahab's heart was melted into faith. She came to believe that Yahweh was going to give the land to his people, something that the people of Israel at this point were having a hard time believing. But she did. And she wanted in on God's grace and goodness. The judgment on the Canaanite city of Jericho was horrific. But someone was spared. It wasn't the most upstanding, the most impressive, the most religious, or the most important person in town. It was the person who believed what God said and sought to come under his promise of grace for sinners. For anyone and everyone who seeks God's mercy while it may be found, experiencing that mercy is not just a possibility, it's a certainty. Jericho was the first of many battles in what would be an extensive military campaign that played out over many miles and over several years. And when we come to the end of the book of Joshua, to Joshua 21, we see that God's promise that Israel will possess the land has been fulfilled. Look in chapter 21, beginning in verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. The Lord was faithful to fulfill his promises. And for a time, Israel basked in covenant blessing under Joshua. But sadly, they did not obey God's command to devote all of the Canaanites to destruction. Instead, they made peace with some of them. And they began to intermarry with them. And over time, they began to adopt some of those pagan practices of the Canaanites and worship the Canaanite pagan gods. Eventually, as we will discover, as we work our way through the historical books, Israel's disobedience caused them to be evicted from the land God had given to them. God fulfilled his promise to give them the land and they forfeited it through disobedience. Now, eventually, a small number of Israelites made their way back to the land of Canaan, but they never had the rest from their enemies God had given them before. 
Instead, they found themselves oppressed by a foreign power, longing for God to restore them to all they had lost, a place where they could be at home. The day finally came when God sent a new Joshua, a new leader to lead his people into the abundance of all that God has intended to give his people all along. But interestingly, this Joshua had very little to say specifically about the land, which is somewhat surprising when we consider the typical Jewish hopes and expectations of the Messiah. In fact, Jesus said at one point, my kingdom is not of this world. He spoke of a kingdom that wasn't tied to the soil of Canaan, but would encompass the entire earth. And this was hard for the Israelites of his day to grasp. In fact, it was still primary in the minds of the two disciples walking on their road to Emmaus after the crucifixion. When Jesus appeared and began to walk along with them, they said about Jesus, not knowing it was Jesus they were speaking to, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Their hopes were still anchored in the nation and land of Israel. They did not yet see that by Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he had accomplished the redemption of Israel. And Jesus didn't seem to show a great deal of sympathy for their nationalistic or territorial hopes. Appearing to ignore the subject that they were really interested in, Jesus began to work his way through the Old Testament scriptures, explaining them, not in terms of the future of the nation of Israel or the land of Canaan, but in terms of himself. We read in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Forty days later, even after he had spent those 40 days helping them to understand that the Old Testament, including the book of Joshua, was most profoundly about him and the salvation he accomplished through his death and resurrection, his closest followers were evidently still stuck on when he would restore the land and the rest that their ancestors had known in Joshua's day. And immediately before Jesus ascended into heaven, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In his response, Jesus sought to correct not only the disciples' idea about the timing of the restoration to come, but more significantly, what would be restored. He wanted them to adjust and enlarge the idea of the kingdom they had inherited from their Jewish upbringing into a much bigger and broader understanding of the kingdom of God. This is what he says in, look at Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The kingdom of God was no longer going to be primarily about the nation of Israel living in the land of Canaan. In fact, it had never really been limited to that. 
Israel was established by God to be the seed, the starting point for a kingdom that would encompass the whole earth. This is the geography of grace. So instead of instructing his followers on how they could take back their country from the Romans, Jesus commanded them to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The land crafted by the one who shaped the continents was designed from the beginning, not as an end in itself, but as a means to the end of reaching the world with the gospel. No longer would the kingdom of God be defined by borders or bloodlines. Now it would be embraced through belief in Jesus Christ. No longer would it be confined to those who worshipped in Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem would become the launching pad for declaring the grace made available to people for every tribe, tongue, and nation. No longer would citizenship in God's kingdom come by birth to a Jewish mother or father. Now it was clear that it comes to all, Jew, Gentile, through the new birth by God's Spirit. Now every person in which Christ dwells by his Spirit is holy land. The shadow of the land of Canaan as the place where God dwelled with his people, like so many other shadows in the Old Testament, has fallen away. Its substance, a kingdom that is not of this world, remains. The land promise hasn't been revoked or replaced. It has been transformed and expanded. All of those who put their faith in Christ alone will one day dwell in the land that Abraham evidently always understood as the true essence and intention of God's promise. The writer of Hebrews says of Abraham, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham evidently saw through the promise of the land into its deeper reality. And the New Testament clearly tells us that in Christ we have everything that God has promised to Abraham and to his descendants, including the land. We dwell in the holy land now as we abide in Christ and make our home in him. You know, in a sense, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz was right. There's no place like home. We don't know this by experience, but by faith, based on God's promise. Because we haven't experienced our heavenly home yet. However, the day will come when our greater Joshua will lead us into this land. Christ will return as the commander of the Lord's armies. And with his sword, he will devote to destruction all the evil that has invaded his land. And we will finally take possession of our inheritance in the true land of milk and honey. This will be the land we've always longed for. The land that Canaan was always pointing toward. The land 
where we will finally be at home.